Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts, and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how are you doing? It's a Sunday evening, um, quite hot outside. Uh, there are quite obnoxious children playing in the uh, road outside my um, my house, like it's the 80s or something. Not happy about that, but, you know, <laughs> otherwise I just ate a goat's cheese and um, red onion chutney roll. So I've got a bit of K-Cal in me, ready to chat some uh, games. How are you doing? Yeah, I've just ate, eaten a very large uh, dish of curry. So uh, and some and some a lot of rice. So I'm feeling quite stodgy. So um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see how uh, light I am on my feet today. That's good. So 45 minutes in, Matthew will just be asleep in this. Um, <laughs> 25 minutes in, I imagine we'll get the uh, the old Rennie rustling going. Um, <laughs> was it a takeout curry, Matthew, or like a homemade one? Uh, no, it was actually the height of indulgence. It was one of those cook curries. Oh, okay, fancy. You know, where someone um, else makes a homemade meal for you, basically, and then you buy it from a shop. But you can call it cooking, technically, to yourself if you uh, want to. Yeah, it's fi- like it, it feels quite sort of wholesome. Um, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's indulgent, but it is nice. Okay, good. Um, so, Matthew, in the time since uh, we recorded our last episode, um, well, actually, this did happen before the episode went live, but the episode last week with Tim Clark yeah. on it, um, you were you had predicted that Starfield wouldn't be delayed as a yeah. result of um, you know various factors, uh, and me and Tim both said that it would be, yeah. um, and then it was delayed to the first half of next year. So, how are you feeling about about that situation and how that played out? Uh well, I mean, what the fuck do I know? Um, I guess <laughs> is the is the answer to that. Um, yeah, I genuinely thought. Like the way they were talking about it didn't, you know, felt like they there was a, a master plan at work. Like I said in that episode, I, I think that you know the vibe it gave off and the the fact that they had a promotionally friendly date um, in mind. Uh, I mean, I mean, yikes for this year in terms of like this is no shape to the year, you know. It's just a, a, a vast void to be filled with, um, you know, interesting finds, I guess. But. Um, yeah, I would not like to be a magazine or website <laughs> uh, at the moment. <laughs> there's, um, uh, feels like there's a lot of pressure piled on this next um, few weeks now of not E3, basically. So I imagine that like after that, we'll have a pretty firm idea of what the quote-unquote shape of the year is. I think it's wild. Saints Row is now going to be like the big open world game for the year and they'll probably get a lot more attention because of it yeah or like um forespoken for example um that's still due out this year i think that's like mm, yeah september or something um, yeah yeah, yeah. That, could, that could do it yeah i could do yeah. it and i imagine there'll be a few yeah a few kind of first party surprises um yeah isn't it all eyes on god of war whether or not that sticks around isn't it feels like it a bit all eyes on that, like you say, and um, a new shiny forcer. That'll probably be this year, won't it? Yeah, so, you would, yeah. yeah, you would think so. Be, yeah. I'd be very, very surprised if it wasn't. But then I'd yeah. be very, very surprised if uh, Starfield slips. So let's uh, let's not base our expectations on what I would or wouldn't be surprised about, because um, as we've established, it means nothing. Want to make any other sort of clangor, uh, sort of guesses, predictions while we're here, Matthew? Mario Odyssey will be out this year, that two, <laughs> Mario Odyssey 2, something like that? Or, uh... No, I mean, the, the only thing that the, the clear run in the second half of the year does mean is that we'll actually be able to finish Xenoblade 3, which will be nice, because those <laughs> games are, like, universally massive, you know, they're, across the series. They're all absolute behemoths, real-time sinks, so... Um... Yeah, that'll be good. Um, okay, cool. So um, next up, I was going to talk a bit about uh, Patreon. So this podcast and all the podcasts we do are supported by um, 
patreon.com slash backpagepod. Uh, we've got a, a lovely audience there that kind of backs us. There are two tiers. There's a tip jar tier that's £1, and then a um, uh, XL tier for £4.50. That gets you um, two extra podcasts a month, one about games, one about pop culture. Um, as we're recording this, we're just about to put up our um, MCU movies ranked list, and we've previously done japanese crime fiction episode on the um on the pop culture side and then we've um, done xbox backwards compatibility games and um also uh best boss battles we've done too so we're starting to rack up now these exclusive episodes and anyone who signs up um gets all of them in like one rss feed basically or you can browse it on the patreon app so that's cool yeah so next month matthew we've got um best and worst e3 moments ever and um, best TV shows of the century. How are you feeling about those? It's like a, a thing to come. Yeah, both good. I mean, I I watch a lot of TV, <laughs> as you know. Uh, so yeah, plenty of thoughts on that. Uh, E3, yeah, I mean, loads of loads of classic stuff. Where does uh, annoying uh, Yuji Naka fit in the grand scheme of things? We will find out. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Um, yeah, and I hope people will have enjoyed the Marvel episode by the time they listen to this. Um, yeah, and not been too put off by... Well, I was going to say put off by the hot takes, but then we sort of mentioned this on the Discord, like, warning, there may be a couple of spicy takes in this, and then it triggered this sort of tidal wave of listener <laughs> hot takes, and all of a sudden we seemed quite mild by comparison, so um, I'm not too worried about that anymore. Yeah, there were a couple in there, I was like, okay, that's a bit bonkers, <laughs> I'll just close that and go away for a bit, hopefully it'll resolve itself. <laughs> But yeah, our takes are like uh, there's a few, is it a few like out 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 and out apologies as well for our takes in that episode. So it was um, <laughs> it's a fun one to do. So yep, the uh, XL tier um, gets you uh, access to that if you'd like to listen to it. It's um, about two and a half hours of um, yeah complete bullshit, ragging <laughs> on theme tunes, all of that fun stuff. Um, content worth paying for. Asterix. Um, so, and yeah, listen good. all the way to the end. <laughs> oh yes exactly yeah actually as we're um discussing this matthew i haven't cut that in yet but oh, like, right. um, I'm a, it, it will be in there by the time people have listened to it so that's uh yeah it's just um it's just making me laugh thinking about it um okay so uh, i thought i'd like give a quick preview of what's coming up in um june matthew before we um jump into the games we've been playing yeah so this is the, this is the main the main episodes yeah, basically, yeah. Um, main episodes, yeah. So we've explained what's coming up on the Patreon. Like I say, best and worst E3 moments and best TV shows of the century. So that's those two exclusive episodes. But for for everyone, um, we've got an ode to the Dreamcast with a returning guest um, that we we're going to be, record- be recording that very soon. Looking forward to that. Should be good. Um, and uh, some of our listeners have been able to guess who that person is. <laughs> but I haven't said, just in case it doesn't happen. It'll be fine, though. I'm sure it'll happen. It isn't um, Yuji Naka. <laughs> um, I should warn you. It's good to head that off, I think, yeah. Um, we let our Patreon um, uh, patrons vote on the next uh, draft episode, actually. So it's been, uh, oh, I think it's like March now we did our last draft. So we've given it like a big break there. Um, we don't want people to get tired of the draft format where me and Matthew compete to pick the best games. And people universally voted for an episode on 90s PC games. So we'll be picking 10 of those each in a draft format and then listeners will be able to vote on the winners. How are you feeling about that one, Matthew? A few things I am absolutely rock solid on because it just, you know, I was playing PC games in the time. And so my tastes, you know, the genres that are that reflect my tastes, I'm absolutely fine with. Uh, there's definitely some massive gaps in my knowledge. Uh, I'm going to be winging it a bit with a lot of research, I should add. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I'll hopefully find some stuff outside of the really obvious things to talk about. Yeah, I think uh, I think that should be uh, should be nice for people. Um, I've definitely got some uh, 
personal 90s PC gaming memories to share in that one, so it should be fun. Um, and uh, we've got another episode on like whatever E3 is this year, the version of E3 that's rolling out, the Summer Games Fest, Xbox Conference, all that stuff. Like We don't do much in the way of current games commentary stuff, but last year we did do a fun episode where we made a fake magazine um, out of the uh, E3 uh, sort of like pickings, basically. So um, we'll do that again this year. And um, we've also got another episode of Games Court. We've actually got like a massive backlog of Games Court purchases now in our Discord. So um, the twist with this one is that I will be the judge of our listeners' purchases. Matthew gets to deliver the opening speech. How are you feeling about about all of that, Matthew? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited uh, for the shoe to be on the other foot. Um, I apologise for the backlog. It feels like something that happens in real courts. You know, lots of people are waiting for their day in court, and there's all this kind of you know judicial problems because of that. Um, <laughs> I like that our fake court reflects the real world in this way. I love that courts are just destined to be chaotic. Um, actually um, i've got to like point in, jump in and correct you that the on, on samuel roberts uh, peninsula um it's the phrase is the foot is on the other shoe um, <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. just a little sample of the, the the comedic chaos to come for the listeners <laughs> at home. um so yeah um games court big judge sammy edition that's coming uh, it's, next it's month. difficult because i have read through what i'll be defending and a lot of them i can't stand so <laughs> um, yeah it may be the classic judge defense attorney tag team um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, yeah i've always found that's a good shortcut to justice in my history um, i set him up you knock him down <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, the the ones that I'm actually I, I sort of get more angry about are the ones where it's someone like who uh, comes in and says, uh, "I just bought um, Panzer Dragoon Saga for uh, four pound fifty. Um, be lenient, judge." And it's like, "Oh come on, mate! Like you know, this we're meant to have some peril here. You know what I mean? Like uh, understand that the, that the drama is part of the format." Um, I'm only joking, of course. I'm very grateful for anyone who's thrown their interest in. Um, so You're not good. meant to want to get hurt. Like, this isn't like a kind of one of those weird sort of fetish sort of things. It's not like a, yeah, like, wound me, judge. It's not, that's not what we're going for with this. It's, it's, well, you're meant to want to live, you know, you're yeah. meant to make the case for it. Um, that's true. Or the whole but, thing doesn't work. Well, the original fun of Games Court was like, when I would say out loud the Sly Cooper collection on PS3 and then hearing you go, oh, like audibly, <laughs> like that was the comedy. Um so I'm just keen to make sure we've got enough of that sort of stuff going on. That's hence the you know the desire to be hurt, basically. That's um, <laughs> where that comes from. So um, after that, I'll probably cover all of June. I think I think that's four episode mm. ideas. We've also got um, in July we'll do our next big uh, best games of the different year episodes. 2013 is next up. Um, uh, still debating whether I'm going to bother trying to play Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag before then. <laughs> probably not to be honest so Mm. hopefully it'll make matthew's list uh we'll see um but yeah and um i also want to do matthew um nintendo switch games hall of fame volume one as well because you and i talked for a while about doing a best switch games episode but there's actually too many switch games so um mimicking our indie format should be good so any thoughts on those matthew oh yeah for sure it's about time i can big up uh the oh what the fuck's it called oh Daedalus, the golden age of jazz awakens, or, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever that that fucking bizarro game is called. Yeah, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's about time for some Switch love, and it it doesn't like it sort of straddles generations a little bit. It's a, a bit of a weird one. So yeah, about yeah. time we we picked it up. 
Yep, I'm excited to give um, the official tie-in to uh, UK quiz show Bullseye. It's from um, Turning the Sun. Um, <laughs> that is always in the sales tab on oh, Switch. Oh, um, that sales tab. That is hard work. <laughs> Talk yeah, about, tough. like, panning for gold. There's just grit, grit, grit in that thing. Um, but um, that should be um, that should be fun, too. So we might have a guest on for that. I haven't um, decided yet. Um, <laughs> but either way, this it, it'll be good to talk about the Switch, like Matthew says. So that's what's coming up in the near future on the podcast. Hopefully there's something in there that you're excited about. Um, and if you're not, um, just come back in August, I guess. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, so, Matthew, this is another What We've Been Playing episode, um, combined with some listener questions at the end. So, let's see. We've got seven games between us here. I'm sure we'll talk about them in varying length. Um, do you want to go first up with your, your first game? I'm going to kick off with the Centennial Case, a Shijima story, which is a FMV mystery game from Square Enix that got announced sort of on the sly about i think it was this year it was like three months ago maybe at after like a nintendo direct hmm. i think that was the deal yeah wasn't it announced during a japanese nintendo direct and then we found out about it afterwards yeah or? i think that i think that's right and right. it feels like square enix hasn't really known what what to do with this one and it kind of had the stink of disaster on it the fact that like there weren't previews and no one was really talking about it massively but it's got some real heavyweights involved in that it's uh, directed by Kachiro Ito who is actually the writer on 428's Shibuya Scramble so it's got quite good like visual novel heritage and the question was like was that going to translate into the FMV game side of things I don't know how, how do you feel about FMV games before we get into this I don't think I've really played a modern one unless you count her story um, and her story is such a specific format, it almost doesn't Yeah. Count. Like, it's, uh, yeah, I just know that in the case of this game, I messaged you when they announced it and said, Matthew, they've announced a game just for you. And, like, <laughs> that is kind of how I've seen it. This has in, been boxed off in my head as the Matthew Castle game, and now here it is. So, um, yeah, I, I, open to them is what I'd say. Okay, know? cool. I haven't played every FMV game that's currently out on the market, but a lot of the ones I have played I thought were, like, quite throwaway and the kind of universal connection between them were that they were often budget in the actual filming. Like they didn't, they didn't feel like film or TV. They felt like something sort of noticeably sort of shoestring from the talent involved to just the production values. Everything about them is a little off. Often they're very sort of throwaway little kind of two hour, two and a half hour things. So probably the first thing to say about this one, which is quite unusual, is it's absolutely massive. It's about 13 hours long. Wow. Really substantial and it's pretty premium feeling to the point that I'm kind of amazed they didn't promote this more because it must have cost a fair amount to make because it's got like a tv season's worth of mysteries and stories in it it's got a pretty big cast i'd say like it's probably like 12 main actors and they're all like tv names in japan i would say like you can look them up and they've all done a mixture of tv and films a lot of stuff i haven't heard of but you know they're not just sort of plucked out of obscurity so it's you know that that's that's quite surprising. Before we get into the sort of nitty gritty of it, I'll, I'll break down what it actually is. In that it is a story about a mystery writer in present day who is invited to go and stay at, with the Shijima family at their estate, where there are some sort of mysteries that a member of the family thinks she's going to be interested in, like a body's been found under a cherry tree, and there's this sort of weird legend in the family of this fruit that if you eat it you you basically become immortal 
What's really cool about it, though, is that the kind of mysteries that are happening in present day lead this character, Kokogami, to uh, find stories from the past of, like, mysteries that happened years ago. And when she reads the stories, she sort of reenacts them in her head. So the story also jumps through time. So you go back to the, I think it's the 1920s and the 1970s. They're sort of 50 years apart. Um, And so you get these kind of self-contained mysteries along the way, which may or may not have an impact on or or have an influence on what is happening in the present day. That I really like, just from a production point of view. Like, it's really fun seeing like the historical setting and then there's like the 70s jazz club and then this quite kind of modern sort of sleek house that that's all great the question i was asking when i went into it is like why why an fmv game and not a visual novel say given that that's what the director is sort of best known for the kind of key to it is that when it does these sort of flashbacks she populates the stories with the people around her in present day so all the actors play lots of characters throughout And I actually think having these kind of very recognisable through lines and these kind of human performers in the mix really helps kind of tie all these characters together because you're like, oh, it's that guy who was like the friendly gardener in 2022 is like uh, this very rich aristocrat in the 1920s. And then in the 1970s, he's this slightly bumbling kind of jazz cafe technician. And there's something about like seeing a flesh and blood performer bring these different characters to life that kind of makes that connection feel like super, super tangible and interconnected. And it leans on that to draw out some really like fun stuff in the mystery because you start like thinking of these characters in relation to who else they've been like throughout history you know if someone was a murderer in the 1920s when that character then when that actor then pops up in the 1970s again like you instantly bring some sort of suspicions to it and it it sort of loads the cast with all these like interesting sort of subtexts because of this this sort of doubling up which i really really liked so what does like a moment to moment interaction kind of look like in this game the kind of first i'd say 40 minutes of a case is basically you just watching like the story play out like they go to the location it will introduce the characters there'll be some dramatic foreshadowing of murder there will be a murder they'll investigate it all this happens very hands-off like you can make a few dialogue choices but it doesn't branch the story it's just a kind of like i don't know make you feel present i guess and it has this mechanic where you can the name of a clue will flash up and you press a button to record that clue but you don't actually have to do that again like it it's just to kind of like make you feel like you know you're not just watching tv but it's it's kind of like fake interaction i would say um and then at the end of that phase you enter what is sort of the big gameplay section which is kind of you enter the detective's sort of mind palace where all those clues that appeared have to be matched to questions that are right that sort of arose during the watching of it so it might say kind of you know what was odd about the room and you'll be like well there was that like bit of burnt rope and there was a spill you know there was a vase had fallen over and and each one of these things you connect to it uh, it forms a hypothesis and in that hypothesis it kind of says how it thinks that's relevant like well i i think this burnt rope was here because this thing happened and this thing happened i don't think it's wholly successful but it is kind of interesting in that what this phase is basically about is creating so many hypothesis hypotheses it's basically like having someone on the sofa going you know what do you think that was about 
And what did you think that object was about? And what do you think of that object is about, regardless of whether or not you actually felt they were important? And it kind of tries to tie them back in. And it's if, if you've listened to our episode on Japanese mystery fiction, part of the Patreon, one of the things I was talking about on there, and, and it's one of my favourite things about particularly Japanese mysteries, is that you tend to have, like, the mis- you know the murder happens quite early on. And then the meat of the book is people sitting around, like, discussing kind of what happened, what they thought happened. And it's basically the author suggesting all these different ideas to you for you to sort of go, oh, yeah, actually, I kind of like the sound of that. And maybe I'll, like, riff on that in my own thinking. And this phase feels like a kind of gameplay version of that. It's trying to create this just huge wealth of, like, conflicting ideas, a lot of which you can dismiss instantly. But some of them you're like, actually, I didn't really think, yes, that is potentially. You know, I guess if that was true and then this other thing was true, then it could potentially have played out like this, where I think a lot of mystery games work a lot harder. A lot of detective video games work, like, a lot harder to kind of hone in on the answer. They don't want you to feel kind of confused or puzzled, where this kind of, like, branches out. Like, it's it's very much about the kind of, like, the huge sort of possibility space that follows a murder, which I haven't really seen someone sort of try to take that approach before. The flip side to that is, like, it's maybe not, like, massively engaging in and of itself. Like, you are just matching these tiles, and the visual design of the tiles basically tells you where to put them. Like, you're not really making any deductions. You're just sort of slotting in, well, that that's the only thing that can slot in there. And I've seen, like, the reviews that hated this game are like, well, the only bit of game is just matching these tiles, and that's kind of nothing. And I kind of get that, but at the same time, I fundamentally, like, enjoyed the story and enjoyed the movie sections of it enough, and... You know, what follows the hypothesis thing is the unmasking of the killer where you start accusing people and you maybe have to answer like seven, eight questions to do it. It's like a very simplified, like, it's not even Ace Attorney. It's just sort of, um, you know, it'll say like, what do you think the bucket was for? And then it will show you like three of the hypotheses that you came up with in the previous section. You select the one which is obviously right and then it moves on. But it's it does have this sort of dramatic charge to it. I think it does capture that moment of the kind of Poirot unmasking someone in a room and pointing the finger quite well. You know, it's not not massively complicated. And I, I, I think I only got like maybe one or two answers wrong in the whole, whole 13 hours. But like the fun of... I don't know, triggering the next bit of this TV show and having, like, a very minimal input uh, kind of, like, won me over as it went on. So a bit of a niche proposition then, but, like, if it's your, if it's your sort of thing, it will definitely... If you, if you play games a bit like this, you'll enjoy it. I wouldn't want to say, like, if you love Ace Attorney or if you love Danganronpa, you'll love this. I think you'll find it, like, maybe a bit too hands-off. But if you specifically loved the mysteries of Ace Attorney and the mysteries of Danganronpa, uh, this is, this is like, kind of heaven. Like, it's, you know, I, I could actually see this being, like, one of my games of the year, weirdly. Right, okay. <laughs> because yeah. I, but, but then it's just because the subject matter is, like, so my bag. So and- if you're Matthew Castle, play this. If you're not Matthew Castle, ask yourself whether you like the stories of Danganronpa and Ace Attorney. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, basically, it just sounds like it's a... It's a it, it kind of knows its niche, which I guess is probably speaks to like Square Enix trying to like figure out exactly how to sell yeah, it. Yeah, um, I mean, it is like fifty quid as well. Well, you know, that's uh, but we're talking to the guy who bought the Daedalus thing for fifty quid, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's much better than that. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, when you see the production values, you're like, oh yeah, I, you know, I get it. Do you play it on um, Switch? No, I played it on PS5. Um, mm. PS5 is the only one which has got the 4K footage. Oh, okay. That's, like, even the yeah. PC one doesn't, I don't think. That's weird. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not too surprised, but yeah. Um, I was just thinking that like maybe the Switch one works because you can just fucking take it around the house with you where you're doing shit if it's going to have an hour and a half. Yeah, that'd be uh, good. Metalogue. But uh, yeah, interesting. So the Centennial case available in all good games shops now. Uh, digital storefronts, <laughs> Matthew. Yes. <laughs> Oh dear! For the listeners' benefit, um, the audio uh, Matthew's internet dropped out while he was um, uh, delivering a, a delightful monologue about um, uh, the Centennial case. And uh, I think that what we got to Matthew was like, which version was the best? We were talking about. I think I was making a joke about how oh, the I can walk Switch... around the house with the Switch. Yeah, yeah, good times. Remember that ten minutes ago? Great <laughs> oh, yeah, times. That was great. Oh, who could forget? I, I was enjoying that riff. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it makes sense that we're talking about the centennial case, and there should be this big time jump um, <laughs> in the episode where now I'm a DJ and you're a builder. Um, so. As my life was always going that way, to be honest. I think <laughs> the real direction my life is going is Bradley Cooper at the end of um, Nightmare Alley. That's that's me, basically. <laughs> bite the chick, bite the chicken Mr. heads off. I was born for it. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, very good, Matthew. Um, so, yeah, was there anything kind of more you wanted to cover on that one? Uh, only that there's a, a lot of really good hats. Um, <laughs> there's a detective who wears a very cool hat um, that I quite liked. Good soundtrack. Got a good soundtrack. Great soundtrack. Yeah, I've been listening to it actually loads by someone called Yuki Hayashi. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just good mystery music and also really fun change-ups as he goes through the different eras so like the 70s is all kind of jazzy and the earliest stuff's got like more traditional instrumentation stuff like that um yeah it's just i don't know like just a real treat that came out of nowhere so matthew in conclusion the centennial case buy it or bin it (laughs) buy it okay great um to the listeners at home twice matthew's internet has dropped out now so we've created all kinds of fucking continuity nightmares in the editing of this podcast so (laughs) um yeah it will not appear seamless to listeners at home but hey we're doing on a different day now so um yeah oh yeah and what a day (laughs) yeah a monday (laughs) 24 a crazy 24 hours (laughs) what did you do in the uh the intervening time between recording part one and two of this podcast matthew oh i I can't actually tell you it's top secret oh the patreon episode came out and you know, people seem to be it's taking it in the spirit in which it was intended. Yeah, for sure. I was um, quite surprised actually. It's created a lot of debate in there. In there, like people do have strong opinions on this stuff. So um, yeah, I think it was the right thing in terms of like fit for our audience, at least the ones who were <laughs> um, talk to us on um, Discord. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's uh, it's good to be sh- there. We should do every episode like this, except we we record like you know a fifth of it on each subsequent day, and then as the episode goes <laughs> on, you hear our developing thoughts on the week be like very kind of meta and strange. Yeah, but in every single section, Matthew talks about the centennial case for twenty minutes <laughs> in a really boring way. <laughs> you you were really self conscious about that, weren't you? About having to redo it and stuff. But oh you know. uh, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I, I tell you what, just to, to go back to it very, very, very quickly. Um, I wrote a review of it, and I've never reviewed an FMV game before. Mm. And even after 15 years, it's amazing how something like that can throw me a bit, where I think, 
oh, I don't really have, not the vocabulary, but like, what is the approach? You know, it's kind of, what do I think about this genre, you know, and where this fits into it? And it was just an interesting exercise. That's why I was maybe meandering a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that is fair enough. Uh, so yes, okay, fine. Um, we've but worked, anyway. Now you understand why all those people who apply for staff writer jobs are reviewing Telltale Games, Matthew, what massive talents they were to even convey what the uh, what these games were. Um, <laughs> Lol. <laughs> um, what have you been playing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we finally got there after 24 hours, what I've been playing. Oh, wow, what a relief. Um, let's think. Okay, Gears Tactics is first up for me, Matthew. So, oh, nice. 2019 game, um, released on PC first and released on Xbox later with um, bits and pieces added to it, I believe. So... Lately, I've been, um, obviously, I bought an Xbox Series X. I've been dipping into bits and pieces of that. It's lovely to go and find games that have already come out that I haven't played that have the old um, Series SX uh, enhanced label. And this is one of those. Um, I was just in the mood for some sort of chunky tactics. And um, this was uh, this was there to kind of tick that box. Um, what I find interesting is that when they released it on console, they actually added a bunch of stuff. So... There's uh, this thing called Jacked Mode, which is basically like it gives you a little robot helper where you um you can basically like revolve your strategy around it. It will give you little buffs, throw you little um limited use weapons, things like that. Huh. Um, and at the same time, you get given uh new variants of the um uh <laughs> still can't remember after I've completed this game and after twenty hours, I still can't remember what they're called. But the mushy Gears of War boys, um, the locusts. That's it. Yeah, the big grey lads. That's right. Um, so. That means you're basically fa- you're, you're fighting them that ones that can explode and ones that have other kind of like d- different benefits and stuff. I think they call like deviant variants of the locust. So you basically have a new tactical option and then a, a kind of new way to deal with the um, the escalating threat. So I played through that mode, which felt like the most complete one. Like um, this felt like the equivalent of a kind of XCOM style expansion with a load of stuff added to it. So did that um, and yeah, really, uh, really, really enjoyed it. Um, just kind of like perfect for a pad. Um, tactical experience really adapts gears of war nicely um has a very kind of aggressive approach to tactics where you're sort of chaining kills together you're chainsawing through uh dudes and generally enjoying lots of satisfying animations um you sort of like um you still gonna need to play it in cover otherwise you take a bit too much damage but um you've got you've got quite hardy uh warriors they can sort of bounce back there are ways to keep them going and it's um yeah generally really really exciting so um, the one thing, like you know, the one thing that surprised me here is that I am usually so switched off by Gears Fiction because it's not really my sort of thing. The kind of like uh, fifty dudes with giant muscles shouting emulsion every ten minutes, but like, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, um, which always gives me a little chuckle. But like, I would say that it's kind of a, to this game's credit that even though I'm not like the biggest fan of the fiction, I was still able to kind of really engage with it and, and enjoy it. And um, the missions were like really nicely designed. Some great story missions in this. A couple of fun bosses. Um, it, like it, one thing it does that's like not amazing is it has this side mission content to bulk out the campaign. You might need it for the progression curve of the game, but it basically gives you the similar similar mission types um, to repeat in different areas of the game. And and after mm. a while, you kind of you see those mission types a lot, and maybe they're not as like fresh the first time as they were. Sorry, the the, the third time that, as they were the first, mm. but. Um, I think in spite of that, it's still really, really good. I'd, I'd probably give it like a high a high eight if I was reviewing it, Matthew. Mm. I really liked it. Um, you've played this, right? Yeah, I, I absolutely love this game. I think it's it's so good. Um, like the the thing that's awesome is you can pull off some absolutely ludicrous like kill chains. There's lots of mechanics 
that like re-energize your like action meter in this mm. and the way you can stitch all that into just ludicrous and i think you, you actually have to because it throws quite a lot at you you know they tend to swarm you and um i also i i, I remember a bit like really liking the like the heavy gunner class in this which is usually something i do not like in games like the heavy or the tank doesn't really like interest me as a trope but this one's got this really great thing where i think is it like the longer they're stuck in place like the more powerful they become yeah so actually it really rewards like hunkering down and it kind of represents things which are quite gearsy kind of ideas in a really like fun, tangible way, and you really see the strategic like benefit in game. I, I think this game's fantastic. I and like you're right. It's it's kind of probably like a high eight, but there's so much room for this to become something really awesome if they get to make another one. Yeah, for sure. Like it's interesting. It doesn't have a strategy layer like XCOM does. So like the um, yeah the old uh, manage the battle uh, from a base kind of thing. Um, you do go around in this sort of little car, but all it really amounts to is um, managing progression for your different. Um, different guys um but yeah you're right it, it, what's kind of really nice and gearsy about it is how it turns these kind of XCOM style mechanics into quite gearsy things so um when i think overwatch is one of the best things in this game because you'll set up a bunch of overwatch points then your dudes will just absolutely mash through locusts when they run into it like a wall <laughs> of machine gun fire and they'll just get torn <laughs> apart and that feels very gears um yeah and so it feels like yeah. they thought really long and hard about the core gameplay loop and how that um how that keeps things exciting um so yeah i think it's great that it's on game pass because it's the sort of thing that i imagine that like a lot of casual players who play who maybe have enjoyed a gears of war game probably wouldn't have bought but when it's on the service like that i can see them just playing it for years to come just dipping in and saying oh this is actually rad so um, yeah i'm hoping it's got a like extended shelf life because like i say there's there's definitely room for it to grow you know yeah i don't think xbox had any idea that they had something this good <laughs> on their hands right. like they really didn't talk about it at all like the first time we saw it was like a month before it came out they did some previews where we did like zoom previews admittedly because of the um yeah we would have been would we have been covid times just about no. yeah it was like it came out in april 2020 so if it's a month yeah before, so yeah. yeah we you know we you know they they announced it e3 never showed it off no one had high expectations for this and then it was just a real yeah a real pleasant surprise splash damage done good so i'm um, yeah i was very very pleased by this i played through the entire thing in my week off so um, oh, nice. 20 hours is that campaign. all you did on your week off basically yeah and drank red wine and that was it um <laughs> <laughs> i think it's time for me to uh to leave bath and uh, go somewhere else but yeah <laughs> um so yeah that was um that was uh basically my week off yes um and then i, I got to the menu screen of um xenoblade chronicles and that was it matthew to let you down i was hoping to talk, <laughs> hoping to talk about that on this episode didn't happen so um why don't you tell me about your next game uh so i've been playing eternal threads um which is a time manipulating adventure are you aware of this one uh, i'm not no okay so uh studio called cosmonaut studios um i'd not heard of them i think they're, they're based in liverpool the setup is that in the future like humankind's basically being wiped out or the remnants of humankind are living in some pretty bleak circumstances and the way they're dealing with this is going back in time and trying to sort of my read is they're trying to change the apocalyptic future of the Earth by making quite small tweaks to the timeline. In this case, uh, their actions consigned to a house where you're trying to 
uh, save the lives of six people who perished in the fire there. And um, someone sort of explains to you, well, like these six people will go on to have kids and they'll have kids and they'll have kids. And maybe it'll be enough to alter our overall timeline, um, which is kind of like a cool hook. And so you're walking around this this sort of burnt out sort of husk of this house, reliving pockets of time, which are kind of like played out as holograms. Um, the thing I'd probably liken it to most is Tacoma in that it's a, it's a kind of a walk around the environment and experience the past lives of people through a here kind of ghostly hologram type system. And um, the difference being that as you watch these events, you can manipulate them. Never really says how you're manipulating them, but you can basically make people make different decisions. And by doing that, you're trying to alter their futures to save them from this fire, whether that's averting the fire completely or just getting them out the house or you know you have to sort of figure this out so you're kind of like looking at their lives trying to kind of work out the little kind of um sort of branching points that may build up to some kind of grander sort of safer future for them it's it's really interesting because it's kind of like super sci-fi concept but it's also incredibly domestic like the actual tone of it and the kind of drama of it, it's a little bit um, everybody's gone to the rapture in terms of, like, it's everyday people. Like, the, these aren't people who are, like, you know, they're not all, like, you know, scientists and, like, future world saviors. They're just, like, students and housemates in this sort of flat, and there's a landlord character as well. And, like, the drama that kind of folds unfolds between them is, is quite mundane. You know, there's, like, a, you know, a pregnancy scare and someone's thinking about getting a new job and someone's sister is kind of fallen on hard times and has moved in. And, like, I'd say the biggest hurdle with this one is kind of getting over the the kind of the gulf between... The kind of exciting high concept sci fi-ness and how like sort of deliberately boring the actual stories are. You know, it's it's not like some big big mad like uh, you know the the the, the stories you're ch- the stories are all very sort of soapy and low key and like for some people that may feel like a little too low energy. Like the changes you're enacting aren't like particularly melodramatic or exciting you know it's kind of can you manipulate people so that they uh, you know reveal this hidden pregnancy say and maybe that will cause a row and maybe that row will cause someone to flee the house on the night of the fire say so it's it's things like that and I really like the setup of it for sure I think the, the problem with this and it actually relates quite handily to a question we'll talk about later is that Um, I think it takes quite a long time for you to see the kind of cleverness of the branching. Like, I feel like it could do with a really good, like, easy win early on, where you're like, oh, okay, this is cool, I see this. Like, I'm sending ripples through this timeline. Like, you can play for a couple of hours, not really changing anything. You know, like, it took me uh, maybe three hours of playing before, like, someone's eventual fate was properly changed. So that's that's maybe too long like i think you have to kind of sort of forgive it that slow pacing and before you get into it i must admit i haven't fully finished this yet i think i've got like five of them saved and even then i get the impression that it's not just a case of saving them it's can you save them and also not have ruined their lives in the process you can kind of get them out the house 
by being quite brutal to them and causing like massive rifts and arguments. And I think there's probably a more difficult way to get them out without doing that. So, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, Tacoma meets everybody's gone to the rapture meets the kind of like very British vibe of um, that. Is it last stop that we talked about last year? Mm. That kind of, yeah, just very, very familiar, but maybe too familiar um, if you want a bit of escapism. Okay, cool. I do like the um, the look of it. Actually, it's um, I, I do. I think this game did enter my orbit somewhat. Like the the key, the key art rings a bell, so maybe I did see people talking about it last week. Um, but yeah, yeah, it just there, there is something quite odd about you're setting up all these like sci-fi gizmos, and it's all very kind of apocalyptic, and you know it's a little bit like John Connor go back in time and 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 change change the world. Except you go back and people are kind of you know, talking about cereal and you're like, eh? <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. It's, it, that's a little joke. You know, you, you almost, there's not like a big villain hmm. in it. You know, every every time you think it's going to be like super dark or weird, it actually ends up being pretty straightforward because it, it doesn't want to be that game. Yeah. Maybe there is, you know, maybe I can like fuck people's lives so completely that they become like anime villains and start monologuing. I don't know. Um, but my current impression is that it's, kind of doesn't yeah isn't interested in that and sounds like it's um this features one of um uh, history's classic villains matthew which is the concept of fire (laughs) (laughs) some would argue that's the greatest villain of all wouldn't you say yeah yeah. it's quite funny actually you can watch like when you do start changing their futures you can like watch what happens on the night of the fire and you know the people who saved obviously it's like them outside being like oh thank fuck i got out of the house because of the fire um but the, the like the end like nodes that you can kind of tap into for the people who don't escape is just them kind of quietly lying in their beds i guess succumbing to like inhalation of smoke grim. it's just it's it's really like low-key grim yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay good so uh and you watch that a lot there's this one particular woman who have not been able to save yet and i've just watched her like uh, you know slip into sort of unconsciousness um many times now so um this remi- apologies to her this reminds me of one of the the grimmest deaths i gave someone in um dishonored i can't remember if i told the story of the podcast before but like in one of the dlcs where you play as michael madsen's dowd character i sort of like darted someone um in these kind of like swampy area outside this mansion and they went to sleep and i picked them up and then dropped them face first into the most shallow puddle of water you can imagine like so 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 small and then like in brackets it just said like dead and i was like that is like such a grim death that you get like <laughs> sleep darted then drowned in a puddle like yeah <laughs> you drowned in an inch of water <laughs> yeah. um so yeah, i always I always remember that because i always felt it felt weirdly harrowing um yeah so uh yeah well that's yeah this is this is yeah this has got that energy too um i wondered if like it's just too british for americans because hmm. it's very like all right mate what's going on oh yeah i've got to go out get the milk from the from the offie or whatever and you're like ah, does this is this baffling to international <laughs> audiences i don't know can something be too british well it's weird how we consider things that are american to be kind of universal but like not yeah not the other way around when it's the same language and it's like I don't yeah know, that kind of that's just that's just like the the weight of pop culture there, but like uh, I don't know, you know, you watch plenty of things with subtitles, so um, who knows? To them, it would just be like the um, Austin Powers gold member shat on a turtle thing, you know. Um, 
all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. That's, a, sounds cool. <laughs> there's a guy in this game who's got a huge poster for the video game Zool okay. on his wall. Right. And I have no idea, like, how this came to be. Like, why this one... It's, like, the only licensed object in this whole game is this poster of Zool. I don't know if, like, the people who made it have ties to Zool. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's, an, that's an odd poster to have on your wall, even in, like... I think it's set in like 2002 or something. It's that's odd. Right. Okay. Maybe the uh, localized American version has like Earthbound on it or something. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chrono Trigger. <laughs> something that didn't come out here. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um. So yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, why is it called Eternal Threads? What's What's the name? I, mean, I guess like the threads of time uh, that you're, you're tweaking. I'd have called it Time Fire. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, well, you know, I would play a game called Time Fire. I'd definitely click on its Steam profile page it's, just to see what the deal was. It's got big uh, fake 30 rock show energy Time Fire, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, no, I want to check that out. I see it's not got many Steam reviews, but I'd quite like to, to play it's, that. It's, yeah, I don't, maybe it's not out-out yet. I think it is. Like I think. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, well, it's, it's, yeah. You know, if you like sort of detective walking sim type games... You know, Tacoma, where you can alter the story a lot more. You know, you, you'll probably dig it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Time Fire, available now on PC. Okay, <laughs> next up. Um, <laughs> I've been playing Trek to Yomi, Matthew, as ever. Oh, yeah. um, Game Pass merely tells me what games I need to play, so I don't need to um, go and find them myself. I'm joking, of course. Um, I play plenty <laughs> outside of Game Pass. But it is handy when um, a lot of these quote-unquote big indies um, drop onto the service. So um, Trek to Yomi is a Devolver-published game. Um, it's made by Flying Wild Hog, who are the Shadow Warrior developers. I assume they must have scaled up a bit to make this, because they also just released Shadow Warrior 3 pretty recently so oh, um i think that maybe there's a different developer involved but it's like one there's like this creative director guy they credit in the thing and then it says flying wild hog so i assume that's um that's who made it but yeah this is kind of like a black and white kurosawa inspired mostly side scrolling kind of it's got like adventure bits where you can move around in full 3d then when it's in combat it's basically side on and um that's quite cool because it allows them to do quite a lot of things with um sort of um perspective that i like i think the camera work in this is beautiful so you have this black and white aesthetic um and and lots of filters kind of mimicking the look of a a film from i don't know the 50s something like that something that's deliberately in that kind of kurosawa sort of um you know, sort of style, basically. If you know any of those films, then it will that aesthetic will be uh, instantly familiar, I think. Um, but then it has real... Because pen- there are so many Kurosawa fans out there. <laughs> well, there are, though, right? Like, uh, I can't tell if you're being sarcastic. In teenagers? I don't know. Well, I'm, Maybe. Sh- I'm sure a lot of people have just watched, like, one of them. Like, I, that describes me. I've seen, like, two of his films, you know what I mean? Oh, but, okay. Um... Well, that was very snooty of me. I retract <laughs> that. Well, no, I just think it's, like... If you go into like BFI player, you will always find the most obvious Kurosawa films. So like, I feel like in the US, you've probably got fairly easy to access. access to it. I, yeah, I think it's like, that's like you're on Disney Plus and you're like, oh, maybe I'll check in on BFI player instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can get it through Amazon Prime, can't you? So it's on the old um, the old channels thing. In HBO uh, Max in the US, I believe has uh, okay. Seven Samurai and Rashomon, I believe. So you can like go find this stuff. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's true. BFI player is perhaps more niche than I was making out there. Um, <laughs> but um, so it's inspired by those. But it kind of just amounts to a fairly simple sort of revenge story uh, where you're slicing dudes up in a combat system I'd describe as like more casual Sekiro, um, like heavy right. on sort of counters. 
and obviously it's 2D, so that's the difference to Sekiro. Heavy on counters, you, you carry a sword, you take a lot of damage if you're you're hit. It does actually have save points, so it's it's not quite as punishing as the likes of um of, of Froms games. Uh, but there's a lot of like a dude swings at you, you press the counter just in time, then you kind of swipe a dude and then um yeah, you parry just in time, then you swipe a dude and kill them. So um, there's a lot of that. Um, some of the enemies are pleasantly disposable. Like you'll get you'll get dudes who just run at you on a bridge, and you'll just hit the heavy attack button several times. And you'll just slice through them, and they'll just fall off the bridge each time. That's really nice. So some enemies are more challenging than others. Has a few kind of hidden areas to sort of pick out. I think this is. I think this might be like a touch underrated. I think it's a, it got some oh. like some apathetic notices from people. I think like the thing about it that isn't like isn't doesn't quite click on the level you might want is the combat the parry window quite hard to distinguish seems really generous but then other times i found it slightly fiddly um right and like there were some enemies where i just like i, I was on a complete roll and i just um um biff through them but then i i'd get to a similar set of enemies and then find myself struggling to work out exactly when i'm parrying and when the window is and why time was slowing down right. sometimes and it's not as legible as playing something like Sekiro, which always gives you the information you need to make decisions. Right. Um, See, I, th- I thought this was going to be one of those sort of limbo alikes mm. where the you know momentum is kind of built into it. You know, it's not really designed to like hold you back or really challenge you. You know, you're, you're meant to just consume the cinematic flow of it. Is it is it not like that? Well, you have a health bar and stuff like, and you lose bits of health, and then bosses. Oh, right. Yeah. The other thing is that like um, there are some. There are some hidden save points in the world, so you kind of you do a lot of your planning from save point to save point, much as you would with a From game. But because it's a two D game, it's a or like two D presented, it's a little bit more calculated, I suppose. Like you just know you need to get go in a straight line until you get to the next save point. So if you say crawl through a gap in a cliff and you find a secret save point, then that completely changes how you approach those encounters because you're like, okay, there are ten enemies between me and the next um, uh, checkpoint. Um, but if there's a secret checkpoint in the middle, it's like, okay, I've only, I need, need to kill five. And um, so if my health goes down to one, that's fine um, because I can save in the middle. But, you mm. know, if your health is down to one and you don't have a save point in the middle, then it becomes a lot harder. So um, mm. it encourages you to unpick, uh, unpick secrets. But I wouldn't say it quite fits into that mold, Matthew, just because it is like it has combat as a kind of core loop, I guess. Um, yeah. And so it expects you to die sometimes. I would say, though, it's not like it's not that hard. Like, it's how long to be has it's four and a half hours. I'm I'm halfway through it based on the chapter count. Right. So it's not that long. But I think it I think it sort of has probably the perfect amount of game that it needs. Mm. And I think the presentation's really impressive. Um like the voice acting and stuff, like don't know really where where we're at these days with like how we quantify cultural appropriation because I feel like I saw this around Ghost of Tsushima, but I've not seen the same thing here. There's certainly, you know, you know it's a Polish developer, I believe, and then um, mm-hmm. the story is written by uh, one of the co-founders of Rock Paper Shotgun, I believe. So, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, Alec, yeah. Um, but like, I read a PlayStation blog with um, interview with the creator director, and I think he said that like well, they put loads of effort into understanding this particular Edo part of um, uh, Japanese history. So. You know, it definitely like superficially. If you know the Kurosawa films, it will feel um, like it, it will look to you like it. I would say, and uh, I yeah. think that's I think that's fine for what they're going for. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the Kurosawa thing in Tsushima was what kind of like actually annoyed people because they were like, "Oh, this is Kurosawa mode," and it just sort of meant black and white and a bit of wind. And I think people found that like a little reductive, right, and right. then that kind of like drew the kind of 
jackals to it in a way <laughs> uh, where maybe if this is just a bit more kind of authentic or it doesn't in you know it doesn't sort of annoy you in in, in an obvious way maybe you avoid that conversation uh, um would be my guess maybe i think like um yeah I, I, that I, wasn't me bit i've been watching so i say jackals i've been watching there's this stupid um <laughs> seth myers late night chat show right he does this thing where he correct he does corrections where viewers write in with all the things they got wrong and he does it as a little online short and he refers to all his all that audience as jackals right. like they're they're the people who pick holes in the show sorry that's pretty sounded i was being dismissive of people <laughs> who had problems with cultural appropriation that wasn't what i was going for yeah i, I, I truthfully I, I didn't read into the reactions against Tsushima that much i just remember there being murmurings of it and then a, a kataku yeah. piece, a kataku piece on what Japanese players made of it and stuff like that. So um, mm. anyway, um, this is a, I think this is a decent little game, a perfect Game Pass game, that it is finite. Um, I think the Soul Combat, even if it's like slightly fiddlier than Sekiro, is perfectly like serviceable. This must be like a mid-budget game. It feels like I was there playing it, thinking if I played something like this on PS2, I wouldn't like I wouldn't like blink at it. I'd be like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like it, it feels like the scale of like a a PS2 game. That's a weird thing to say, but like. It's just something I don't know. The production values are like not sort of monster open world level, but they are like above what I would consider what a game like this might have looked like five years ago. Do you know what I mean? Is the three D exploration bits are they a bit Onimusha? Um, it's like I think like it and Onimusha probably just draw from similar um, sources um, in right. terms of like uh, storytelling. Like the opening actually really reminded me of Onimusha too because that starts with like. A village burning and this starts with it in similar fashion um with like one person determined to sort of like um resolve it um so that feels like yeah i don't want to be too reductive though because it's not something i understand that well but it's more no no no, i just i just i I knew you were a fan of that particular series and um i didn't realize this even had that 3d perspective element to it yeah it's more like it's it's just like the amount of voice acting and the detail put into animations of people like the the roadsides and these like villagers being attacked and stuff like that it just feels very it's very very cinematic on a level that doesn't mm-hmm. feel like it's got any compromises to it one of the weird things is it does actually have performance issues on xbox series x and i couldn't at first i thought it was trying to achieve like a sort of slower shutter speed to kind of like have that effect right. but then but then there are times where the environments are empty and it, it looks more like 60 fps so i think it really does just have a few frame rate stutters here or there but um no, I really, I, I think this is a great Game Pass game. Like, this is exactly what I kind of want on Game Pass. Is just here's four and a half hours of game. Um, go enjoy yourself. Is it this year's carrying. <laughs> I think I slightly prefer it to carrying. Okay, just goes down a little smoother. It was a nice palate cleanser after Gears Tactics as well. I just needed something yeah, a bit, yeah. a bit, a bit shorter. Um, but yeah, yeah, very good. Um, so, what's your next game, Matthew? Uh, I've been playing uh, a, a, a few hours of Vampire: The Masquerade Swan Song from Big Bad Wolf, and this is—they made this game called The Council, which I don't know if you've played. No, I remember reading about it at the time. It looked quite quite cool in terms of setting and stuff. Yeah, so they—they, like, they, I think they called that, and they definitely called this this narrative RPG, which is sort of like if you imagine you're kind of like life is strange kind of uh, 
sort of linear but a 3D world where you have a bit of freedom to walk around, probably a bit more open than like um, a Telltale game, say. Um, but then it has this kind of like almost like tabletop conversation system with skill points and dice rolls and things to actually decide kind of how much progress you make in a, in a conversation with people and i i really like the council it's 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 quite balked in lots of ways like it's 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 like maybe a maybe a sort of six out of ten but it's it had some really interesting ideas and so this game is obviously quite similar to that except it's set in the world of vampire the masquerade which uh, i'm not a big tabletop guy i don't really know a huge amount about the game other than it you know what i have played in like Masquerade Bloodlines, the game from 20 years ago. But, like, Vampire Society seems like a really, really good fit for their kind of deal. It's a world where secrecy is of the utmost importance. The whole kind of pitch of the Masquerade is that that's that's the rules which govern their society, which avoids vampires from kind of revealing themselves to mortal kind. But then on top of that, you also have the kind of political power structure of their society. And then within that, you also have the kind of weird hierarchy of who bit who. Like certain people kind of have a natural seniority because they may be, you know, they, you know, someone else is their kind of vampire child, I think they call it. And so there's, there's, it's quite a, a sort of tangled network of power that you step into, which I think is a, a really fun place, um, albeit a slightly overwhelming place. Like the, the big problem with this game is that it kind of throws a lot of shit at you and you basically have to jump into the in-game codex like every 10 seconds to kind of pass it. So it's, you know, expect a struggle from the off, I would say, unless you're really, you know, you're already really into this stuff. And you play as three characters who are kind of investigating. There's been this big kind of slaughter of this kind of vampire peace treaty that was being signed in Boston. And you get set tasks by the kind of head vampires called the Prince. These three characters are kind of setting off on their own kind of little paths. Um, I won't go too deep into them, but they've all got they've got like different sort of vampire clans, which grant them different powers so there are sort of subtle differences between them and but like you say there's this weird like rpg level where you kind of level up their speech powers because in this game there isn't any combat but you instead have these kind of like sort of verbal battles where you're trying they're called confrontations where you're kind of locked in with a kind of key character who if you fail you might miss like a vital piece of information which may branch the entire story off down like a a more disappointing route say um sometimes i think as as the game goes on i think in the later parts those confrontations can kill you off if you fail them so like the stakes are pretty high um <laughs> stakes nah. um, so yeah very good mm. so yeah but uh, uh, early on um you know you're just trying to kind of like absorb this quite weird dialogue system with these skill sheets it throws quite a lot at you i actually played a couple of hours of this and then restarted because i felt like i'd made characters who are totally abysmal and if there's a big failing in the game it's that i don't think it really it either doesn't establish like the rules clearly enough that you can make informed choices early on or it hasn't accounted for multiple characters enough like it feels like there are a few powers which are basically essential to making any progress and if you don't make progress you don't get the xp which means your character's gonna be you know equally shit in the next level which is only going to snowball so by the end by all accounts where it's much harder you can really paint yourself into a corner which is a that that's a big problem and I should say with this, like it's 
it's quite interesting, the reviews came out last week and it's had a huge range. Like the kind of range of scores you actually very rarely see these days, you know, all the way from like nines down to threes. Wow. Um, yeah, it's crazy, really interesting. And um, like different problems from different people, like a lot of people agree that there's like bugs and things like that. And that's fine. There is this like level of that. But some people love the writing and think it's like, very kind of sort of campy kind of hammy fun that fits the vampire world some people think it's really underwritten um different people rate different characters like if you read all the reviews they'll all tell you one of the three is the standout and the other two are bad right which is kind of an interesting kind of um you know look into into how split this are uh, you know there was uh, uh rick lane on pc gamer wrote uh, a really nice review of this he gave it 50 um like he had some big 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 problems with it and it, you know really justifies you know his stance on it but then i've also read like equally compelling nine out of tens just a, a, a an interesting thing that i'm trying to pick through you know i think i you know, by all accounts the earlier parts are stronger right um because it has this this snowballing problem like you say that emerges um right now i'm actually like really enjoying it like i, f- I feel like it is a it's a it's a little bit janky and i did have to restart because i made really bad characters um but now i'm into the swing of it it feels like like you're playing as three like vampire detectives um there is a lot of dialogue but there's also these quite big environments to explore with lots of like environmental storytelling and some quite interesting puzzles a lot more uh involved puzzling then like you get in life is strange or telltale like they're, they're, there's some quite big puzzles which if you don't solve you know the level you can still complete it but you might miss some quite key narrative branches because when you finish a level it says well you could have done this this and this and you're like holy shit i didn't even realize there was like a whole other area to this level that i maybe missed or you know it feels like quite substantial in that way which i, I actually like um though i know some people kind of don't like to feel like they're missing out on stuff so you know factor that into your purchase decision but um yeah i i, I like the world of this like it's very um not as high budget but it's quite hitmanny and it's quite a cinematic version of like very luxurious apartments and the vampire society is you know all very sleek and made of marble and reflective it's a, a very like visually appealing like art style and art design yeah, I like. I, I definitely have to play it through to the end to to get a proper grip on it. But I'm like, I'm I'm sort of digging it so far. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, interesting. The uh, score range of three to nine. That's like the deadly premonition range. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I d- yeah. I don't think it's like funny or quirky enough to maybe like fall in love with it. Right. In right. that way, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if it has like the weird factor, which I think is quite key to the the magic seven out of ten. Yeah. Um, but uh, not to get into 7 out of 10s, because I know this upsets our Discord. <laughs> um, the endless discussion of what's a 7 versus a 7. The Yakuza, uh, the Yakuza thing was particularly controversial, Matthew. <laughs> that's for another episode. I think that's justified. We should do an episode on 7 out of 10s. We, do, we have one other patron. We're coming, it's coming up for the XL tier. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, yeah, <laughs> you committed to so, it. You may have even suggested it. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there you go. Obviously a good idea, yeah. if I thought of it. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm kind of I'm into it, but I appreciate why others aren't, and I appreciate that it could go to shit. So let's let's find out uh, in a couple of weeks. Okay, cool. Is that unlocked on the old Epic Games Press account? That's like the uh, <laughs> if, if, so, if so, I'll play it immediately. 
Is it up there? Uh, I believe it has. Oh, shit. Okay, great. That's uh, great, great news. I will be playing that then. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I, too, will have um, a take on it at some point. So, uh, my next game, Matthew. In fact, um, we've done your games now, so let's just turn mine left, and then we get to some yeah, uh, yeah. listener questions. So, I wanted to pick up the Tunic chat again. Um, I first thought oh, okay. talked about this in, I think it was March at this point, late March, um, in our last What We've Been Playing episode. It is a kind of Zelda Dark Souls alike. I'm sure a lot of people are aware of it. It's one of the highest reviewed games of the year so far. Um, you play as a little fox uh, lad or or, or um, I don't remember the gender of the fox, to be honest. I don't, maybe they don't tell you. A, a, a fox, a fox creature um, with uh, this anthropomorphic. And uh, the story is told to you um, through a mix of like exploring the world and... Um, there's like tiny little story instances and then there's also this um this manual which is key to the the game where Mm. you go around collecting pages of it it's the manual for the game essentially but it also contains kind of vital lore information and um it is styled in the in the in the way that like a a japanese uh, snares or nez manual might have been um stylized Mm. and um really is like a breathtaking work in of itself it's the factor that differentiates it from other games in the genre i would say it's a an additional layer of magic that I think works really, really well. So last time I played it, I'd been um, lost for ages trying to get the shield. It became a, a recurring gag that I played this game for hours and hadn't got the shield yet. Um, I've now finished the game. Really, really liked it. Um, it's sort of like the combat did you get the shield. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> uh, I think the combat is like not is is pretty good, but it is like. Um, you have a stamina bar, so you do often find yourself just running out and of, of like energy, and then having to sort of like run away or roll away. That feels a bit Dark Soulsy, and you become more vulnerable when you're doing that. Um, mm. That that part I'm not like massive on, and um, also like the last boss was just cheap enough that I had to completely redo the way I've been playing the combat throughout the game and spam this one move in order to win. Um, so that was like my one sort of problem with it, but I absolutely like adored the journey this is going straight into my um my top 10 for the year um so uh yeah really really good uh some of the some of the um the later sections of the game are fantastic in terms of the enemy types they offer the sort of like visual sort of splendor of um of what they show you um a couple of really good bosses as well and like um there are multiple endings to this game and i think that how they how they stack those is quite quite beautiful um and there is like one giant puzzle at the heart of the game. I didn't do it. I'll confess I got the old IGN walkthrough out to do this. There is <laughs> one puzzle involving a closed gate on the top, very very peak of the mountain in the game that there is a solution to, to solving it that you can figure out using the game. You don't need anything else, but it is like um, a Jindosh's Lock-esque um, puzzle of like, you know, you might not be able to do this because it, you need to be a bit of a clever clogs to do it. Um, so I don't know if any of that sounds appealing to you, Matthew. I assume you'll go back and play this at some point. It feels like it's close yeah, enough to your, I, your interest, you know? Yeah, I, I need to need to be in the mood for it. Yeah, I was I was making decent progress. I can't remember why I sort of faulted with this one, but I was, um, yeah, I was definitely digging the um, the instruction manual element, and I think actually Catherine wrote a, quite a good article on um, RPS about how the, like, the instruction manual draws, like, direct influence from the specifically the original legend of zelda uh maybe one and two manuals mm. like there's direct visual like not visual not not like trace them but they, you know it's it's very clearly um 
you know, riffing specifically on on some of those art designs, and there's like parodies of some of the illustrations from that. So, yeah, it's kind of a. Uh, is this even on Switch? It seems mad if it's not. It's not on Switch. No, it's. I think. It, oh, yeah. I think it might just be on Xbox and PC at the moment. Right, but very, um, you know, c- clearly made by someone who has like a lot of Nintendo love, I would say, and kind of has that sort of playfulness. So. Yeah, I will go back. I will go back and do it. Yeah, for sure. I'll add it to the lists. Yeah, for sure. When I'm, yeah, this was. Um, I, I didn't expect to get through this as um, well. I suppose it did take me a couple of months, but I kind of thought it was going to be like a, a Zelda game in terms of like it would have eight dungeons or something like that, and loads of items right. to unpick. But it's more like three dungeons or four dungeons, and like it, it's just a, it's a bit it's a, a bit leaner and structured a bit differently to a Zelda game. So it's not exactly the same. Um, I think I thought the the exploration was going to be it's going to be like Link's Awakening essentially in terms of how the, right. the island was laid out, but it's um, yeah it, it is more it is structured more like a Dark Souls with like unlocking new routes to get to places and things like that. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, really, really good. Gives you some great powers later on, actually. Um, some sort of game changing powers that um, mess with the combat in some fun ways. So small and perfectly formed um this is fantastic so uh yeah very cool um, yeah I, I heard catherine saying that there was like I, i'm aware that there's almost like a sort of um there are like secret mechanics in this yeah that like is when you say you had to turn to a walkthrough was that for that stuff or like did, did you did you like engage with some of that stuff and it was just like a massive difficult end game puzzle that got you or what was the sort of um so like I mean, like, I don't know if it is just like one thing, or like, and it like more of a um, like like the witness. There's more of like a hidden world to this that you can kind of tap into. Or it's uh, well, when it comes to the, the the big puzzle, I just like I just could not figure out for the life of me what it was, and I wanted to finish it and move on, basically. Um, so I just looked that up because, and then when I looked it up, I was like, oh yeah, that is really clever. Actually, I went back and sort of retraced how it actually like works. Um, mm. In terms of how the information is given to you as a player, in terms of like the hidden mechanics thing, that is true because um, there was my tactic to defeat the final boss is that there was um, there are basically like you get elemental powers in the game and then you get like a magic rod and they're separate items. But basically, I read on IGN that if you press both buttons together, they um, then the light the the magic rod fires ice powers out of it, and because the oh. magic rod has a lot more ammo there is like a huge advantage to doing that and so you can freeze enemies uh, again and again and again using this like hidden um m- mechanic quote unquote and so mm. that is essentially how how i ended up finishing the game and like um that um that's that sort of thing does definitely exist in the game for sure so um it's cool that that it's in there but i because i was never really much of a magic rod user because it wasn't that powerful so i never ended up in my inventory that much unless i needed to just do some quick ranged attacks right um i was never like actively experimenting with it so i don't know if that's the game's fault or not really i I think it's cool that it's in there as a a touch if i'd have tried to like do it the the way i play it which is the way i play all souls games of like basically just dodging around rolling using the shield and stuff like that i was just going to come unstuck over and over again so as ever matthew uh, magic breaks the souls like it just it's always (laughs) the way um god bless yeah so yeah that's that's tunic matthew my final game of this episode is a game called Little Cities. It is a VR game. It is a city builder um, mm. on the Oculus Quest 2. 
Uh, I've been, I've, I've friend of the show, uh, Jimmy S. Bowers is in our Discord. Works for um, the uh, VR company End Dreams. They make um, VR games. Uh, sent me a code for this very kindly. Um, I'd had my eye on it for a little while. It's funny because there there's been like two city builders in a row in VR that come out that came out. So you had Cities VR, City Skylines VR, um, which is uh, a, a version of sorts of the um, original game. But I think like I think it is like completely custom made for the um, for VR. It's not the same thing mm. as the PC game. And this, which is like. I would say closer to like a mix between a game like Cities and a game like Townscaper in terms of like right. it's a bit of a a bit of a mood a vibe kind of cozy game where right. you're not necessarily stressed out about oh well, I've got to build infrastructure a- yeah yeah I mean like it does have that to it you you do build things like police stations and fire stations you start with houses you add things like um industry you add you know shops and things like that and you add you build roads and then um as you um your population grows you unlock new types of buildings that you can add to your little island um all held up with this absolutely lovely control scheme which is kind of like kind of like using a Wiimote really in terms of how it uses the vr controllers because you kind of like basically um you paint roads onto the um onto the islands and then, like, um, you even like paint um, sort of like sets of buildings. So you can just draw a whole row of houses on there um, using the controller. Has like an in-game smart in VR smartwatch that you look at that has all of the different stats on it. Tells you how happy people are. Tells you what their needs are in terms of like building types and things like that. Tells you how much money you have coming in, stuff like that. Um, but just the, the audio design is really, really good. Like, um, you can zoom in and out, and then the audio will change based on where you are. Um, loads of nice touches like. Um, when you sort of upgrade when you level up your um your population grows there's like little balloons that go off and stuff like that um and i just sat in, sat in it for about two and a half hours yesterday just I, I really just really really enjoyed it i think it's only like 15 quid on um oculus quest 2 and it was like a, le- a level of city builder i was kind of really into and i'm guessing you've never heard of this right matthew i haven't no i've never heard of it but i like that vibe because i find city builders a bit stressful i haven't got the the mind to run or build a city and it just ends up being like chaos as i'm <laughs> desperately trying to appease all these virtual lives um so the idea of something that's a bit more kind of chill that you can just sort of drink in from vr yeah that sounds cool yeah it doesn't feel like it's gonna ever have the cities thing of like um a, like a basically like a sewage explosion and it's just shit all over the city like it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't go for that it's much more much more relaxing than that i think and um well that's good yeah but it does seem to have like enough of a tail on it in terms of like you keep unlocking types of buildings and then you can keep optimizing knocking things down filling the space how you want to that i think you can expand to multiple islands i didn't i didn't get to that but um yeah it's certainly like you unlock more space on your starting island and stuff like that and um <coughs> excuse me so I think a key thing that differentiates this from some of the other VR games I've been playing, including some really good ones, is that the interface is really, really good. Like, it it feels good to use the controls, but, like, the menus all have, like, nice fonts and stuff, and it feels like a proper game. When I've been playing stuff like my um, beloved table tennis game in VR, or even, like, The Thrill of the Fight, which is, like, the best boxing game that you can play on the Quest 2, the menus are very, like, prototype kind of game. Um and it maybe feels like the difference here of like having a major VR publisher behind it is that they get things like interface really right. So it's really mm. slick and looks really lovely. Everything in it is everything in it actually, all the buildings that have this lovely kind of little um sort of like model look. Like you're building a big kind of like model village basically. You see the um mm. little vehicles going around and stuff. But like it's um yeah, it just it really, really nice to sort of like pull in and out and just sort of survey your island. Um feels like an art style that's perfect for the quest too, which is, you know, basically like a mobile phone. 
um visual um in terms of visual capabilities so um mm. yeah um i really i really like it little cities on quest 2 matthew it's um it's given me some good vibes the last few days nice yeah. so everyone tap up jimmy s bowers <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what the message is here. Please, ha- please, ha- please hound him on Discord. No, don't really. Um, no, uh, it was good. It was good because I, I, I sort of like on off with the Quest Two since I got the Xbox Series X has fell out of favour a little bit. Um, felt slightly bad about mm. that. So it's nice having a reason to turn it back on. Um, also, um, Resi Mercenaries is out, so uh, give that a bit of a try. Um, we had to, we we had a, we've had a quest in the house for ages, a kind of hangover from um, Catherine's hardware editing days. And we had to give it back, so we're now uh, no longer a VR household. Oh no, that's gutting. What a shame. Um, yeah. Hey, I mean, you, you, what do you think the Patreon's money money is for, Matthew? If not for like um, pr- preposterous <laughs> whims, um, gaming purchases, yeah. you know. Uh, okay, good. Um, so now, Matthew, we transition to some uh, listener questions. Do you want to read out this first one? Yeah. Should we have a break? So we have a little tune. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Let's put some game music in here. Probably from fucking the Centennial Case, if I know Matthew Castle. Welcome back. To that the- was good. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to react to the music. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, sorry. God. Go, go ahead. Wow, that was lovely. Oh, cracking tune. Absolutely, just vibes. Oh man. Do the do the hosts of this podcast have great taste? Okay. <laughs> now for some questions, Matthew. So yeah. um, why don't you go with the first one? Dear. Well, it doesn't say dear. Sorry. If, if that's, that's a lie. Lords of pulping. How do you go about managing this Discord? Uh, slash any other community channels you have worked on in the past. Years ago, I did a similarish thing uh, for work, and it complete and I completely bollocked it. Um, I couldn't work out the right amount of time to spend on it, and would uh, flitter from happily engaging in chat to being deeply offended in the time it takes Vader to steal the life of an innocent Wookie. Uh, that's from Pocket Watts. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, I always Pocket Watts. Okay, I always thought it was like Pocky Twats. But pocky, pocket watts makes more sense. So yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> so I guess like I've sort of been doing it by the seat of my pants, really. So that we've got a Discord for I'm sure a lot of listeners know by this point. We have more than 400 people in there now, Matthew. It's pretty good, isn't it? So we built a little community because we wanted to uh, sort of help people sort of solidify, I guess, their interest in the podcast. When we had like a Discord, uh, we had like a Patreon coming. People can have that level of engagement. Tell us what they think. Um, we realised there wasn't one place people could really go and share their deep thoughts on the podcast and um give us precious games court entries and all that sort of thing we have a very we have like a one moderator so far sam in the discord we may um may add another thinking of asking uh john cheatham if he fancies it matthew um, <laughs> um <laughs> truth is like we just set the rules and then like you just hope that some twats don't jump in and like hijack the whole thing which could still happen what are your thoughts on this matthew <laughs> Yeah, um, I know. I, I I don't kind of keep too close an eye on on the Discord. I must admit, I sit that one out. Um, I did used to manage the comments on the RPS YouTube, and I remember the first thing I, when I joined Gamer Network, you get given uh, ceremoniously a list of horrible words um, to put in your banned word list. Um, Johnny Chiodini on um, 
Eurogamer had like the go-to list of like if you just copy and paste this in this will cut out like most of the really ugly stuff that can happen in comments under YouTube videos and it's just like being it's just the worst document ever because it's just eye-wateringly unpleasant and cruel and toxic um and then I added to it loads I really really policed that channel hard I had like a zero tolerance I shadow banned so many people on RPS YouTube channel because that way you don't know you're banned so you just keep posting your blithering shit and no one will ever hear it it's fantastic it's <laughs> total limbo but also yeah I was just really really on top of it like I, I was super into like moderating it some would say it's like extreme censorship like you literally if you write a comment with the word cyberpunk it won't appear under the videos on RPS because we had so many vile vile people giving us shit um I think some YouTube hate preacher set set them on us because Brendy didn't like Cyberpunk at E3, if you can imagine that. Sorry. But we literally, I got to the point, it was like, well, if you have any opinion, positive or negative, you cannot say anything about Cyberpunk on this channel. Um, I banned the word cringe <laughs> because I couldn't bear to see it under my videos. Did, did you ban... <laughs> it made did, me feel a thousand years old. <laughs> did you ban dog, Matthew? I know you don't like dog on uh, uh, Twitter. No, uh, I've banned dog on my personal Twitter. <laughs> I've silenced it. I don't see the word dog on any tweets. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so if you want to insult Matthew, just um, send, and he won't see it, then just uh, put dog in the messages. Yeah, what I'd really love is a filter that like, filters out images of dogs. <laughs> like, I just don't want to see them either. Um, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> I get, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, so I, I, I policed it, but that's just, I, I don't know. I feel like if you want, if you want, uh, if you're trying to grow any kind of online community and you want it to be a, ni- a nice space... You have to be super on top of it. And it's literally people's jobs to be moderators on like websites and things. It's it's mad that that's the case. But um, yeah, yeah. Our Discord is lovely, lovely people. Yeah, and um, you know, even when they disagree with each other or us, and that's fine. You're allowed. You know, they do it civilly, and it's um, yeah, a nice a nice bunch. Yeah, I banned that one guy who told me I look forty plus on my birthday. So that was, <laughs> that was it. He, uh, he's gone. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah, I've got a massive respect for um, uh, like uh, like I work with community managers now, and I just have enormous respect for how hard they work. But I echo what, echo what Matthew says about our Discord. It's really nice seeing people in there who get the vibe of the podcast, um, and most of them just want to like talk about the weird shit they're buying. I realise that it's become a bit like that on the Discord. Like it's people who have the weird sort of buying habits as us, Matthew, and are sort of stuck yeah. stuck in our little puddle. Um, so yeah, all good. <laughs> um, I'll listen, I'll uh, read out the next one, Matthew. Um, mm-hmm. Listening to uh, this week's Excel episode about backwards compatibility got me thinking about the ways technological Im- limitation can be the source of incredible creative solutions. Necessity is the mother of invention and all that. There are loads of examples from games, and if you have any favourites to share, but I'm wondering if you've noticed any- something similar when creating mags. Were there times when constraints led to interesting, unexpected, or particularly creative magazine content? That's from Ollie. Now, Matthew, working in Nintendo magazine during the Wii U days, you were, I'm sure you were the, um, the king of um, restraint, um, being the mother of invention. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the, uh, what, have you got any uh, particular answer to this one? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely t- towards the end where, like, all they had was Mario Kart and nothing else, and we did do three, like, Mario Kart covers in a row, and it was the same, th- you know, four levels that we played for the first feature as all the other ones. Um, I think we did some quite funny funny writing around that. We did, um, yeah, like, an issue where it was, like, me, Joe, and Kate in conversation for a slightly different perspective, and... 
they were both you know they're both quite weird people and so they wrote quite weird stuff um and i still look back on those that feature and laugh at like the mania which is just so inherent in the words um we did another thing which was like and one of the issues was like a celebration of mario kart rather than specifically about mario kart 8 so it was um like the the mushroom kingdom highway code I think actually Alex Dale wrote that for us. It was really funny. Whoever wrote it for us, it was it was properly properly funny. Like just really nailed the kind of madness of the rules of Mario Kart driving. And we did like a breakdown of our favorite tracks or whatever. I mean, like that stuff's quite commonplace in magazines. You know that you could maybe account for. You know you had like X number of covers you really wanted that you could probably get, and then. You know, there was always talk about trying to make like event issues or try and make your issue the event itself, um, which I guess is a kind of version of this sort of um, sort of necessity being the sort of mother invention. Um, you know, likewise, you know, I've talked before about how we covered E3 on Endgamer and, you know, without going to E3 and then just using our sort of remote position to hoover up everything that was there to make what I felt was the most comprehensive coverage despite not setting foot in the um, convention centre. You know, those those things jump out as, like, big moments. There was also the time um, Geraint, former NGC and Games Master man, Geraint, uh, came in to do some freelance for us and he plugged our grabbing machine, which was a custom-made grabbing machine, into one of the US power converter plugs right. instead of the UK one, and he melted it. Oh, God. Uh, and... It was literally like, well, that means we can't take any screens for the rest of this issue. We're stuck with press shots. And um, we did. We had this jokey page 89, which was like the second back page in a way. And it was a... Um, it, we did this stupid thing where we like drew all the games, all the big games from the issue on that because we couldn't take the screenshots. So we kind of turned a thing which was a genuine disaster into something which made us chuckle, which I guess is a, a, a sort of example of that. Right, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I sort of um, I was trying to think of some fun ones for this, but I mostly came up with like depressing ones. So similar <laughs> to Matthew's one about drawing things. I remember like Phil Savage on PC Gamer when he was news editor on the website. He one outlet had all the it had the exclusive screenshots for um, Just Cause Three, I think it was, and plastered their watermarks all over it. So he just drew his own screenshots based on those, um, which I thought was quite good. Very similar kind of vibe there. Yeah. Um, yeah so that was uh that was good in terms of like fun limitations there weren't many fun ones to be honest like um it was tough to make some of this stuff fun so i remember like the ps4 reveal when we had to write something like 20 pages in a day after it was announced or two days something like that and like we just had a spread on every single detail so a spread on the controller a spread on the share button and what that could mean and the truth is people do want to read about this and do want to read comment on this stuff but um, it's never quite as exciting as when you've just got the access to it, which obviously, you know, no one did because it was the, the PS4 and everyone just knew what everyone else knew, really, aside from the two or three outlets who'd get an interview with a, a big um, a head honcho or something. Um, mm. So that's that's tough, being in those positions where it's like, well, I don't have the access, but I do have to write about this because there's literally nothing better going on. So, yes. Oh, it's tough, God. It is, yeah. So, yeah. Like, it's, it's, there's, there's, like, when everyone doesn't have access fine you're like fine when you know that there is going to be stuff out there like 
there's so many issues I sent where like every passing day I was like, is the actual information going to come out? Is someone going to kind of gazump our sort of spirited attempt to cover this as best we can with like actual facts? You know, is someone else going to come up? You know, but also taking that as motivation for like, well, we don't have it. We know O&M does have it. Let's try and make our coverage better you know, just to sort of spite them, even though we don't have access. Right, yeah. Um, like, the desire to kind of, like, humiliate at your rivals was the power behind a lot of Endgamer's, like, best jokes and things. Um, yeah. yeah, because we're a big old spiteful bunch of bastards. <laughs> well, that's one of the best things about working on PC Gamer is that you didn't have to weigh in on the the covering games consoles. I just hated as a thing. I just never enjoyed it. It's like endless discuss like endless waiting for information every tiny rumor becomes like news and stuff like that like not my kind of um <laughs> coverage whereas on pc gamer it was more like pc gaming was you know a self-perpetuating enclosed industry you didn't tend to do a you wouldn't do a cover on like a graphics card you know you might do a feature on it but um and and most of the time because you were a pc gamer you got the access that you wanted basically so hmm. yeah it's a big contrast to the time i think i definitely mentioned this on a previous episode but where for a long time, Game Informer's GTA 5 feature was the only thing out there on the game. Rockstar didn't put the same information out in any other way. You couldn't go and watch the same stuff that Game uh, Game Informer saw. So you just had to write up what they had in your own way. So you're basically taking information based on something someone else has seen and then saying this is fact, presenting it as fact, which is like oh, yeah. you are in that position because you have screenshots so you can write a feature, you can cover it. But like... It's just like the opposite of ideal. Oh. Um, I, I I definitely like had to do a few previews for Xbox World where I was literally handed like OXM's cover feature, right. and it was like turn that into a new preview, and you'd be reading it, and you'd be like, is this a fact or is this just their writers' like weird flourish or interpretation of this? Yeah, um, that was. That wasn't. Those are not fun writing exercises. Yeah, I think like one of the things I like about modern games media, and Tim talked about it when he came on the episode last mm. week, was that exclusives just aren't quite as prevalent as they were. If they do exist, they're kind of usually quite short-lived, and um, they definitely have like sort of value as someone who you know works in PR. They do, but like they're not the be-all and end-all like they were. They were like it was a proper like even ten years ago it was a proper sort of like we just need to get this and then shut someone else out basis mm. now it's a bit it's just things just a much more short burn in the age of the internet so i don't think that would happen again where just one outlet for months and months is the only one to see a game um that, <laughs> yeah. that, that just wouldn't happen now i don't think and obviously you can do digital events so things are a bit more easy to access oh but yeah try to think of some fun ones but couldn't could only think of times where i felt un- under pressure from the restraint and uh, therefore <laughs> a bit sweaty but with nintendo you turned it into an art form matthew so um do, do you want to read the next one Yes. Hello. I hope you're both well. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who is at the bottom rung of the ladder, i.e. zero industry experience, with aspirations of working in games PR? That's from Quad, and that is definitely one for you, because I have no fucking idea. Well, it got upvoted a few times on the uh, on Discord, this one, so I thought people did want to hear about it. I mean, mm. I'm a bit of a weird example with this, because I, I was in games media for so, so long, and then decided to you know, make it that make that career transition. Uh, you know, being a games media has definitely given me a good sort of basis for it. I, but uh, if if PR is the thing you want to do, I wouldn't say go into media just to get into PR because, you know, you want to go into media because you want to be in media. I would say, um, yeah. So I would say that like 
if that's your main goal i mean um i think that starting with a kind of like probably like a low level position at an agency or you know or a publisher like there are there are companies where you can just start your career in games um there are companies that do that that encourage you to do that games pr is i think you can transition to and from other forms of pr i work with um a really good guy really good uh, guy called alex who transitioned from uh working on like um uh sort of like basically like energy drinks so and like motors motorsport and stuff like that very different cool. sort of field so you can't transition in from anything like the the skill set is as important as the expertise i would say with games pr it's like I understand how media works. That's a really big um, part of it. But then understanding how the PR part works is like another thing I had to do. So, yeah, I would say that like find a way into PR and then find a way into games PR, I would say. Yeah, I don't know if that's useful really. But again, my experience is so specific. I, I hesitate to be like, I will tell the young people how to do this job and how this industry works because I, I, I'm i not sure that's um, I'm best placed for that, you know. Um, mm. Next up, Matthew. Um, hi, a question for the guys. What are your favourite small but perfectly formed games? I'm thinking of something you install and complete within a single evening play session. Never load again, but are completely satisfied. <laughs> As an example, I'd go with Minutes. That's from Jam Warrior. I mean, that is the ultimate answer to this question, so I'm going to struggle to come up with one. What do you think, Matthew? Uh, I really like Sayonara Wild Hearts, the Samogo rhythm game, which is sort of fashioned as a playable pop album, where, you know, I think front to back's probably an hour long so about the length of, of an album and i think there's even a mode where once you've completed it you try and complete it all in one fell swoop and it gives you like a score for the whole game um and like you know the emotional journey of that game and the musical journey you know is is structured like you would a pop album so it has sort of certain peaks and troughs to it um that's that's like very easy to consume i would want to consume that again though that isn't just a one and done you know i i it just sounds too good to kind of like only listen to once um like you know a bit of a cliche but the kind of cinematic puzzlers like your limbos and insides mm-hmm kind of have that you know they don't necessarily have like the mechanical depth that you that you'll be revisiting for you probably would revisit them just because of like the mad artistry of them particularly inside you know the end of that game is just so sort of such just an astonishing feat i think you need to play it a couple of times just to sort of kind of get your head around like just how madly horrible it all is um i really liked um that crows 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 game about the backstage at the theater did you ever play that one yeah dr langerskov and the tiger or something like that simon amstel yeah where not to sort of spoil it but the concept is that you're doing a first person gate you know you're about to play this first person experience and then you get called backstage to basically help the person who's running the game like in the game kind of make the game happen so it's kind of like what happens kind of off screen in a really choreographed first person sort of cinematic experience it makes perfect sense when you play it it's about 20 minutes long like that i've only played once and was like oh yeah that was a good joke i was fond of that so yeah they're, they're kind of you know good all good examples i'd say the artful escape as well quite like that um a bit like sayonara wild hearts like uh kind of has that sort of playable album energy to it. it's a bit longer than that I think it's probably like two and a half hours or three um, but you can zip through that and shred a guitar as you skate down impossible ramps across the universe and things. It's all a bit kind of galaxy-brained, but quite quite wild, quite fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Some good suggestions there, Matthew. 
Um, I would throw in, let's think, uh, I'd probably throw in Gone Home to that. Just I remember mm. playing that in a night um, on PC many years ago. Um, I haven't revisited it, but, you know, that's uh, that was the, the, the first of those types of games that I played and, and really liked. I would say that uh, uh, Tom Francis's game Gunpoint is a really good one evening mm. game. I'd definitely play that in one night. Um, that has, like, feels like a very carefully edited game and that all the levels feel, like, well-considered and, like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't add anything necessarily to like prolong the experience for the sake of it. It just sort of, it, it does its thing. You master the mechanics and it's done. I think it's spot on. Um, yeah, really, really good game. Conflict of interest, I guess. And I've been around his house a couple of times. Um, but yeah. Um, <laughs> he has fed me pizza. <laughs> I did play Sonic CD in one evening, Matthew. Um, you know, that's uh, a Sonic game will definitely fill an evening perfectly. And then you He's also killed me several times as a Cylon in Battlestar Galactica, so I don't feel like that indebted to him. No, that's fine. Um, so yeah, otherwise, <laughs> like Minute, as as mentioned, um, Stanley Parable, as I mentioned in a previous episode, though, I still haven't played this new one yet, um, so I don't know how long that'll take um, to find the new stuff. But um, yeah, you know, Stanley Parable's another good one. So yeah, a lot of indie mm. games tend to be this sort of thing, but um, no mind-blowing answers from me there. If you want a game you can complete in literally half an hour, um, play Echo Junior on the Mega Drive. It's on um, <laughs> most Mega Drive compilations. It's like a um, a more kid friendly version of um, the very traumatizing Echo the Dolphin games. So um, yeah, good stuff, Matthew. Um, is this next one me? Am I reading this? Yeah, go for it. Uh, dear Giant, the Men. Um, it makes more sense mm-hmm. written down. You've discussed before how you would be as Dark Souls bosses, but what about smaller and cuddlier? If you were both transformed into Pokemon like beasties or RPG animal-esque sidekicks like that round Persona Bear, what would you be like? What animals would you take the form of? Um, what elemental affinities would you have? How would your stats skew? I'm guessing towards Rennie-based recovery. And crucially, what would your irritating calls and or catchphrases be? Thanks for humouring me. Love the pod and its unique mix of informed takes and crazy horseshit. Uh, the ever-chaotic balladeer on Discord, Matthew. Um, do you have a take <laughs> on this one? Uh, I was thinking, I, like, not a big animal guy. You know, I, like there's no animal I actually aspire aspire to be in truth, mm. um, which is the boring answer. I mean, I was trying to think of animals that like chitter and chatter a lot because I talk a lot um, like do ch- chipmunks kind of chatter away. Like it could be a little kind of chipmunk might be fitting. Or I was thinking like maybe something quite visually frail and unpleasant, like like a really mangy dog. I uh, thought about this, and like the, I couldn't stop thinking about the Pokemon the like thing. And I think I'd just be like Fat Machoke. That'd be me. <laughs> just like Machoke if he had like heavy breathing and was a bit overweight and hadn't done like leg day. <laughs> that would be me. Made myself chuckle there at my own stupid joke. Um, irritating calls or catchphrases. That's tough. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I necessarily am a big catchphrase guy. Um, I don't have a psychology of a Goomba in me, for example. Like, I haven't... One of those hasn't emerged for me like it has for Matthew. So, yeah, I don't know. It's tough. Um, <laughs> I like the idea of someone throwing a ball and a really mangy pigeon. That is me coming out of it and saying, It's me, Blorco! <laughs> and and everyone's sick of it because they, they're either like, yuck the pigeon or just like, oh, that is so tired. We've we all we've all heard that, you know? Yeah. Do I have a catchphrase, Matthew? Is any, have any, like, persistent uh... phrases come up on this? Um, I call you Matthew a lot, but that's not really a catchphrase. It's just just your name, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> catchphrases. I mean, I mean that you that you 
that, that none come to mind is kind of a compliment because it, sh- it just shows that you're sort of a lot more sort of versatile and eloquent than I, you know, I just fall back on catchphrases <laughs> because my mind's basically turned to pudding. If I feel myself struggling, I'm like, let's just, let's just bring out one of the classics get, and get everyone back on board. Let's roll Blorco out for the 18th time. <laughs> um, yeah, I also like, uh, I, I think like my entire generation was sort of like poisoned against catchphrases by quite self-righteous comedy from Ricky Gervais, which made it yeah. made, ca- made catchphrases seem really uncool. Um, you probably have a you could have assorted like Simpsons phrases that you know. Yeah, I suppose so. But then that that's quite. I'm not, I don't say you don't go around just spouting the Simpsons all the time. You don't do that. But I know that you are quite good on the Simpsons. Yeah, but that's like very embarrassing. I think to roll out like everyone's seen. The it's Simpsons. a huge licensing issue as well for Pokemon. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I did just watch that Chipmunks film, though, which has, like, um, Randy Marsh from South Park in it and um, Ugly Sonic and Batman in it. And I was like, okay, well, if you've got good enough lawyers, they can untangle any old shit. Do you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) So, yeah. um, No further point to add there, Matthew, so let's move on. Um, You want to read the next one? Yes. Hi, Samuel and Matthew. With the likes of The Outer Wild, Deathloop, The Forgotten City and 12 Minutes all being released fairly recently, it would seem time loop games are in vogue. What are some of your favourite applications of this game structure, and where do games get the time loop wrong? Are there any other game franchises you'd like to see playing with these mechanics and tropes in the future? Thanks as ever for a wonderful listen. Hi Samuel and Matthew, with the likes of The Outer Worlds, Deathloop, Forgotten City and 12 Minutes all being released fairly recently, and in brackets it says, I'm doing a time loop thing, (laughs) you get what I'm going for, I'll stop now. That's from Naslin. Very witty. Yeah, very good. Um, so I would say um, it's a bit rude to ask what your favourites are while also listing like three of the best ones. That's quite rude, yeah. I would say. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, yeah, I like uh, Hades is the one that's not on that list, of course. Um, actually, that's not a time loop game, is it? That's just a roguelike kind of. I suppose yeah. it is sort of. It sort of is, right? It, it sort of is and it isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, like. Uh, those I guess those I guess are the ones there's probably more that can be done with the concept but Outer Worlds is the big sort of galaxy brain swing at this isn't it Matthew um do any more specific ones come to mind for you um yeah I mean some I think I think in a way Hitman is a time loop game in that it is a mechanical place that plays out the same way every time and you go in and you use that knowledge to your advantage I don't think that's t- like it's not technically a time loop game, but it in effect is. Yeah, right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so I think I think that works. I think what I, I especially like about Hitman is that it realizes the fun of time loop is like fucking with something and experimenting within that space. So it lets you, you know, save and try out lots of different things. It's quite quick to like iterate on approaches in that game which i like because i'd say while i love time loop games and some of my favorite games of all times are time loop games um the sin they commit is um like not having enough variation in the loop or not having you know making you repeat too much stuff you know even the outer worlds by the end of it you're having to just like retrace the same steps because you've basically broken it down to the optimal route and it's it's whether or not you can complete you know step you know step 20 of 20 and those first 19 you get a bit sick of um that's that's like the inherent flaw of them um i would also say like linking back to eternal threads 
I think the thing these games need to do and the thing that Eternal Threads doesn't do is like explain themselves really clearly or, or give you something quite early on in the game to kind of hook you into the magic of the loop because it is really cool but it's also you know it can be a little tricky to get your head around and you need to have a reason why you're actually using that structure so either like you know it's quite quick to you know it's quite a short loop or the you know the the branches within it or what you can change is really substantial um you know and in eternal threads like i say i was playing a little too long before i felt like uh, well, it's not really a time loop game i get well it is because you're repeating the actions but um in that game it, it just took a little too long to kind of make anything really special happen so i was like eh, do i really care about this kind of loop i don't know yeah that's fair enough matthew um while you were discussing that, I think like the repetition thing is 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 true to an extent. I think games that find a way around that um, uh, can work very um, can work very well. So uh, we talked about the sexy brutal in our indie games Hall of Fame episode, um, and mm. that that works because you're not repeating all the same steps. You're just doing you're exploring one thread of many by following one guest essentially and figuring out mm. what the mystery is. Um, and uh, definitely too, arguably doesn't it does have you do a couple of steps but it, it it deliberately is structured that when you get towards the end of the game you don't actually have to repeat some of the same stuff you did earlier necessarily to get the outcome that you need um yeah it lets you kind of like shortcut your way to killing them off and i think that is the way you do it basically um yeah to kind of reel off so sexy brutales one matthew i i assume that you'd want to give um majora's mask a shout out yeah yeah, I mean, given that it happened before all these other ones so far in advance, like, it gets a lot right, um, for sure. Though even in that game, there's a fair amount, like, waiting around because you're like, well, this is the thing I, you know, this thing happens here and I've done everything else. So it's guilty of some of those sins. Yeah. One other slightly uh, sort of, like, I guess, like, maybe this would make people groan, but I was going to mention the um, Bandersnatch episode of Black Mirror um, because mm. that is, like, a choice-based uh game and you kind of or like interactive tv show and then you watch it again and like sometimes it's got references to the fact that it is a looping game so it's not like you're just watching the same episode necessarily again uh yeah there's like one character in there who when when you play it again it's like oh back again eh? or says something like that so um alluding to the fact Hmm. that they know they're in a loop so that could be considered a time loop game i think um as you try and like exhaust all the different outcomes um Hmm. so yeah i like I also I really liked the way the Forgotten City dealt with the repetition in that there was like that bloke you meet at the start who like if you've solved something you can basically tell him to go and do it and then it's sort of taken care of so you don't have to do it yourself you can just get on with trying new stuff or discovering new stuff like it's maybe a little cheeky in terms of you know it, it sort of breaks the fourth wall a little bit to kind of do it but it's it's actually a super neat solution to that problem cool yeah, in terms of like um, game franchises, I like to see with time loop. I don't, I, I don't know necessarily. I think, I think it's, I think the game just has to be calibrated around it. So it's tough to say like make a Metal Gear Solid game with a time loop or whatever. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I struggle with that bit too. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. If anything, the I'm Forgotten City even... starting as an Elder Scrolls mod um, shows that like the potential of like you know how you can look at a game and be like, oh, I can turn this into a time loop game um, if you've got mm. the right idea. Um, and the right setting for it. So yeah. Um, next up, then Matthew, um, I'd like to know some of your worst purchases from the PS1, PS2 era that you have a soft spot for, despite knowing they should be thrown into the sun. Think along the lines of the Simpsons wrestling, the Crazy Frog game, racing game, the Sopranos game, etc. That's from KH two six nine eight. Now, Matthew, um, I did forget to mention on Star Wars Guilty Pleasures that I did peer pressure um, a friend into buying Jedi Power Battles on PS1. 
And I always felt bad about that. Um, but truthfully, my whole game collection was filled with these these kinds of nightmares. Um, everything from um, uh, Buffy Chaos Please to True Crime Streets of LA. I had The Simpsons Hit and Run and The Simpsons Road Rage. Um, you couldn't stop me at the time from from owning those. Um, I don't know. That's the Crazy Taxi one, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're both they're both fine. They're both like perfectly fine. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think like. There's probably oh the probably the worst one I I did was actually the um was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone on PC. Now Harry, right. Harry Potter itself is very cursed, but this was obviously made without the film like content to draw upon because it felt like a kind of book adaptation more than a film adaptation. Um, and the funny thing is, I think that like Jordan Thomas, the um the the one of the designers of Bioshock and worked on Bioshock Infinite and was the creative director of Bioshock Two, worked on this Harry Potter game. That was his first game and designed a sequence where you get chased by a troll, which I think he listed as like one of his game design crimes, which I found funny. Um, so that's one. <laughs> I paid full price for that, and then my dad went to some real pains to like sell it on to someone who would take on the burden because I knew I'd wasted 30 quid on I it. My, I think my sister got that for Christmas one year. <laughs> yeah. the P- It's not the PS1 one that has the, the Cursed Hagrid. That was actually a slightly better game than the PC one, I think. But um... <laughs> Cursed Hagrid. That, that image makes me laugh every time I see it. It's, that is just gold. Yeah, <laughs> never, never a disappointing day when you see that how about you matthew yeah we had xena warrior princess on the n64 which was a fighting game based on the show xena warrior princess um we didn't buy it like you know we were pestering our parents for it It wasn't like well reviewed i think we bought it in like a sale when we were visiting our grandma it was like 20 quid or 15 quid or something it's how we ended up with it so our game collection was like solid everything was a 90 percent apart from this one xena warrior princess um not a, a a fondly thought of fighting game kind of uh, sort of you have sort of complete free movement in a 3D arena it's not a Tekken alike you're not constantly locked on to your to your rival you can kind of run around and in a four you can do like a four player battle in it which means everyone can like choose who they're fighting like it's a you know imagine like a four player Tekken with everyone coming at different angles it's a bit mad um yeah i mean like I've never watched an episode of Xenia Warrior Princess. All <laughs> I know about the show is from the game, and you know, I like the idea of like turning up at like a fighting game tournament with this, <laughs> and being like, you know, <laughs> I challenge all of you. I'm a jocksaw main. FGC. You know, it's got an unlock. You know, the unlockable character Bruce Campbell's character in Xena. I think he's Autolycus or something. <laughs> Um, yeah, so like a weird pocket of Xena knowledge from that. Um, <laughs> we bought, uh, I bought this terrible, terrible game on PC called Heads. Oh, um, yeah. spelt H E D Z. Did you buy and that? The, well, the whole gimmick of Heads is it's like an arena shooter where you're an alien, and when you put on a different character's head, you become that character and you get all that character's moves. But the gimmick is there's like 300 heads. So in my, you know, <laughs> this is when I was of an age where reading the back of the box where it's like, wow, 300 characters, all different, 300 heads. Look, it's got 300 heads. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're all like just reskins of the same fucking five heads. You know, one of them is like a sea cat. Well, I'm not going to list off 300 <laughs> heads. Um but I had that, and it came with. I remember because it came with this terrible free T-shirt with like the heads alien, which is a bit like the alien from Alien, except it's pink. Um, <laughs> so I had this heads alien T-shirt, which like 
in a lot of family holiday shots, you can see this cursed T-shirt. <laughs> this, like, artefact from this very strange time. Um, uh, funnily enough, uh, Heads was worked on by um, uh, Ralph Fulton, now creative director at Playground Games, uh, mastermind behind uh, Forza Horizon and the new Fable. Um, I think it's like and... Ken Levine. I was going to be like, oh. <laughs> no, no. But I remember joking about Heads on Twitter. I remember him saying, "Oh yeah, I worked on, I worked on Heads." <laughs> this is why you always have so... to be careful with what you slag off out there because someone might have done that as like a first job or like uh, it might be important yeah. to them and that sort of stuff. You know? Heads, Heads was bad. Um, extre- I, can't, I can't remember what it stood for. I think the E and the D were Extreme Destruction. <laughs> right. Maybe it was like something Extreme Destruction Zone Heads, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, very cursed. So, yeah, hugely cursed. <laughs> yeah, I was like quite good at uh, taking. I did really follow Games Magazine's advice at the time. I built up like quite classy collections for my consoles, really. So when mm. I did pl- plump for something that was shit, I knew I was. I knew I deserved it if it was bad. I, ne- right. I could never. <laughs> I could never be mad because I literally ignored the advice and bought it anyway. And it's almost always licensed games where this would happen. Um, yeah. like a bad Spider-Man game or a bad Batman game. I owned the very average Batman game, Batman Vengeance. I don't know if you remember that one, Matthew. It was okay. Oh, I think we owned that as well. That was GameCube era, right? Yeah, it was okay. It was all right. Um, it was sort of done in the style of the animated series. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I had Kevin Cole yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was fine. Fine kind of brawler, brawlery, platformy thing. Um, yeah, but, you know, that's that sort of stuff where, like, it would be a six or a seven, and I'd be like, well... I guess I'll buy it anyway and see how it goes. Um, yeah. But yeah. The, the, the surprise cursed things at, of that era are like where you'd buy, like buying a very bad GameCube port of like a Splinter Cell game or something where you convinced yourself because it got nines on Xbox, but then you ignored like the sixes it got on GameCube and you're like, <laughs> well, it was, you know, it was a nine on an Xbox and like it's a very different prospect when something just technologically like doesn't run on the machine at all yeah um so there's maybe a bit of that along the way as well um yeah sounds good um so yeah <clears throat> hopefully some good uh, comprehensive answers there i've not played the crazy frog <laughs> racing game i'm sure that's due for a hd remake every um any day now i saw that crazy frog um twitter account a few days ago tweeted not feeling crazy rn and like um i i, I, I thought oh, okay we've got to like fucking Gen Z um, uh, sort of like apathy of Crazy Frog to try and appeal to the new generation, I just thought. Okay, very good. All lowercase, you know. Okay, um, the last mailbag for a question for this episode. We've got a bunch more still that we're going to save for the next episode because this one ended up um, running long. Um, Read more than 24 hours um, at this point. Um, So uh, too late for the mailbag episodes behind the scenes discussion. How do you attract new people to listen to the podcast? Do you have any thoughts on this, Matthew? That's from Graham S. Or is that Graham's, like the Daniels, who directed everything ever? <laughs> oh, were you sitting on that one? Uh, uh, no, I wasn't. I just literally came up with that just now. I think that, like, the, the idea of a film being directed by Daniels is the most A24-ass thing I've ever, <laughs> ever fucking seen. And yet, I overcame it and enjoyed the film. Yeah, like, the film is so good, it even gets you over annoying things like that. No, I'll go, I'll um, go see it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, how do we attract new people to listen to it? I mean, word of mouth? It's it's quite difficult with this podcast because different episodes are very different. I feel like we make progress in different directions at different times. Yeah. So, like, the Tim Clark episode, for example, it is like, you know, I know anecdotally it's quite big without... it's You know, our peers are into it and people who know Tim are into it. And so I hear from people who don't normally listen to the podcast. Mm. But then... You know, I don't even know if they 
they probably tune out the second we start talking about fucking Big Sammy Holdings or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've made quite a weird podcast. It's quite hard to, like, grow it in, in any sensible way. <laughs> yeah, like, the key thing is having guests on just tends to, like, put it into the spheres of different people because they'll tweet about it and stuff. Our biggest swell of um, patrons recently actually came from the, um, the Gen episode that we did. We had about, I don't know, 10 plus patrons off the back of that so Mm. um i feel like her audience of people who engage with like dreams and you know her work on edge um definitely like helped us um as well um which is why it's tragic that jen would let us buy some pokemon cards afterwards but what can you do Uh (laughs) but then you also have that you want to always give that disclaimer where you're like at the end of it you're like it's not always like this like this is this is jen's not on it next week i'm afraid yeah you know (laughs) it's tough because it's one of those things where like I think people like the fact it is a variety podcast, as in people who listen to it often like the mystery box element of you listen to it, you don't exactly mm. know what will happen. We could arguably make a more coherent podcast, but then I probably couldn't make a weekly podcast that was just what I've been playing because it'd be knackering trying to do it all. And I know that like a lot of the podcasts do that and, uh, you know, thumbs up to them for being able to. I just don't have the time or the energy to play like five different games a week and talk about them. Um, mm. Can't do it. So... Whereas you have, you have a guest on, all I have to do is research what their history is and then ask them some cool questions that will get some good stories. It's pretty straightforward. So, yeah, I, I like bringing on guests for that reason. You know, they're, they're great. They make for great content. They add a bit of different voices are important. We, we've always wanted to have more and more different types of people on here um, with um, backgrounds to discuss. So we'll, we're definitely committed to, to doing that um, and we'll continue to be. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. But... I don't, I don't. I guess, like, I've never seen it as a thing you have to grow because it's not like you know, it's not like a website's traffic. I don't have to grow it to be profitable. Like um, the Patreon, yeah, is almost... you're not going to make me redundant if no one listens. <laughs> the shareholders are not going to revolt if like the ep- the Tim episode well, only gets <laughs> the Tim episode only gets like 400 downloads or something. Like that's not going to happen. So I see that the Patreon as a bit of a metric for like success. If that keeps growing, I'll feel like it is growing. If it kind of stays the same, which I think it probably will stay about the same, go up and down as we go, mm. that's that's probably a sign that we're we're quite insular at this point. I do sometimes wonder if putting episode eighty in like a title of an episode might be a bit off putting to people because they're like, oh, do I have to listen to the other ones or or whatever? But you can't worry about that too much. You've got to build a loyal audience first and foremost, and hope that they create a bit of word of mouth that you can um, grow your li- your own little um, little listenership. And I feel like we've done that, Matthew. Um, Ooh. Very good, uh, very kind listeners who have um, helped to spread the word. So yes, if you're listening to this and you have a friend who likes games or something like that, it's always cool when someone recommends it to someone else. And uh, you know, um, they don't need to spend money for us to be happy that they're here. Um, so Ooh. yeah. Um, on that note, then Matthew, we'll wrap up for this episode. Uh, where can people find you on social media? Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. Um, you can back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash backpagepod. If you like what we do, unlock up to two extra um, podcasts uh, a month, depending on which tier you get. And um, let's see, what else? Backpagepod on Twitter, backpagegames at gmail.com if you want to email us. Uh, we'll read out more of these questions in about a month when we do our next What We've Been Playing. And um, yeah, and uh, thank you very much for listening. I will be back next week. Goodbye. Bye for now. Bye.